You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today, at long last, I'm speaking to Jeff Innocent. Jeff is someone who has been going for as long as I've been a comic. When I started, he was already a very, very capable and very well-respected headliner. And uh, he is... He's the sort of comic who's... I mean, he's like a real pro. He's a real class act of the sort that I don't know they're making them anymore. You know those people... This is too sort of personal now, I suppose. But when I started, there were people who were diamond hard joke smiths where every minute, every moment was accounted for and crafted. And these days, I suppose the comics that we think of as successful comics, they are they have a similar quality, but the turnover is so high and maybe they're doing huge tours, huge venues, and they're turning over lots of material for TV that... You don't as often see people with routines which are 100% every breath thought about and every texture developed. And, I mean, I can't say enough good things about Jeff's act. I urge you to seek him out. Please try and see him live. He's got bits and bobs online on YouTube. Um, He's someone I think none of that stuff does justice to just how good he is. Um, And uh, as we get to talking... Jeff has got it turns out the uh, post interview I realize now that a good way to find out what Jeff thinks is to ask him what he doesn't like seeing and he that proved to be very very useful he has even to the point of uh, us discussing why you should never say hello at the beginning of your stand up set this is just fantastic and I'm I'm one of those ones for me 2 minutes in I'm thinking oh vintage concom I recorded another one with Andy Osho recently which I have similar feelings about so um all of that to come this is Jeff. Thank you once again to the Angel Comedy Club, the Bill Murray in uh, in Angel in North London for uh, providing me some very kindly providing me some recording space. Uh, a huge supporter of everything Angel do, so uh, please go along and see them and just have a look on their website, which I imagine is angelcomedy.co.uk, if not even .com, uh, and you will see the wide array of very exciting and uh, experimental, often work that they have going on there. So thank you to them. I'm very pleased now to be bringing you this conversation with Jeff Innocent. Is the red light on now? The red light is currently on, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can I just say this then, that I'm not used to being interviewed. 
Okay. Uh, I'd barely been interviewed in the over 20 years that I've been doing stand-up comedy. And the first time was quite early on with Arthur Smith on the Comedy Store Presents programme. I don't know if you remember. I do, yeah. They used to interview the acts in between the sets. Okay. And I'd never been interviewed before. I'd only just started doing stand-up comedy. And I come from a background where you don't really tell people what you're thinking. (laughs) You're a bit cagey. So it probably, I think it came across like the famous or the infamous Robert Mitchum interview where it was just no yes no and i've since been interviewed by him for world service okay and uh, we talked about that so forgive me uh, no i don't think i am like that now i think i'm more open now but also can you edit any pretension you know this uh, is i'm pretentious do you have some sort of edit in case no I'm... no 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 and nor and even if i had that button you it would be taped over uh, because uh, that's exactly uh, what i'm after uh, i remember oh, we we so this this has been a long time coming yes, like i've has. been years, trying to get you fact, on for years, a while years. we talked about it years I ago i was thinking about that on the way here and I thought, you know like bands when they're trying to get someone to come and do a session with their band. <laughs> but rod stewart you know i mean uh, our diaries he was in la i've, I've got to talk to his people his people changed yeah yeah so it's been a bit like that but finally i'm here and and you know thank Thank you for asking me. Uh, uh, I'm sure I'm quite low down on the list of numbers. I think I'm act number, what, 347 or uh, something? 279, yeah, I yeah. think, yeah. So I don't know if the order reflects your interest or their status <laughs> well, or how funny they are. You and I have, uh, we had one in the diary years ago. Yes, we did. And uh, I believe you had to cancel it. Yeah, Is that right? it, it was my fault. And I think I was about sort of 30 or something, then, <laughs> which is still quite low. Well, but, I tell uh, you I what, mind. I, I have you in mind. Conversely, I actually have you in mind as one of those people without having done whom I can't stop. Oh, Stop doing this. Like a, people who collect cards or something. Yeah, or, something like that. Or beer match. There's one that's missing are, and it can't be a complete set. It, that's exactly like that. right. That's, that's exactly right. So you're, you've got some, uh, some road miles under your belt. You've not been doing comedy your whole life. No, I, st- I did my workshop with Tony Allen Yeah. Uh, when I was 41. Which okay. Is, and I'm 63 now. Okay. Um... And that was in Stratford in a community, a community space, river space, yeah? <laughs> community space with Tony Allen, and it was a six-week, and I got it for my birthday. A friend of mine said, you've always thought you were funny. You always said you could do stand-up comedy. Here's, here's a workshop as a gift. So a sort a of revenge week. gift. Yeah, possibly, <laughs> possibly. And uh, now, on reflection, it was probably a terrible workshop because Tony Allen is not about teaching you any joke-writing techniques, any strategies, it's all about finding the you, the real you. Yeah, he's, he wrote which a book, is, Attitude. Which is great, yeah, and, and, I, and I believe book. in that as well. Mm. But I also think on a workshop people should also learn a few basic <laughs> techniques, you know? Okay. Uh, so, so, I, so I left uh, that workshop with a desire to do it. Uh, and, and, of course, a workshop's great for, for, for that bridge between thinking you can do it, wanting to do it, and then getting it together and getting a five-minute yeah. routine. All workshops will do that. Uh, but I think for years I didn't know how to r- actually write a joke or understood the constructs of jokes. It was all about being me, uh, which is great, and, and it held me in good stead. Um, uh, so that's what happened. Yeah, so about 41, I suppose. Were you, were you the oldest person in the class? At 41, do you remember? No, uh, I wasn't the oldest person. There were some older people, but I was the only one who who intended to be a stand-up comedian. I think we forget people often go on stand-up comedy workshops. They will look through and think, what should it be, Zumba or stand-up comedy? Oh, yeah, sure, like a a kind of uh, cookery class class or something. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Uh, And so 
I was the only one who was driven in that sense. And I was also in a position that I had I'd left work. I'd been a window dresser in men's fashion for 15 years. Oxford Street, King's Road, all of that. Um, I, I discovered that earlier today, okay. and so on my face, you can't currently read the. You can't yeah, see no the expression. Yeah, but I had earlier on. Well, that, it but... was it was less to do with shock and more a kind of like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh well, that's better because um, I think most people look at me and think and can't see that. But of course, I haven't always looked like this. Sure. You know, <laughs> this part of the conversation isn't working well <laughs> and on the radio. There'll be an accompanying picture. But, um, uh, you know, I mean, in many ways, I look probably nearer uh, you Like me or John Robbins. Spell young. I <laughs> 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 oh, all white people look the same to me anyway. <laughs> so, um, so I did that for about 15 years. Uh, it was fantastic. And then I'd always had a desire to go to university. So I did that as a mature student during in the mid-80s when you got grants. They paid for you to go to university. They even I had a mortgage and they even paid towards your mortgage. That's Can you believe that? And I think it was part of the this this idea of the nation being educated, you know, which is a great idea. And um, But in between those times, of course, I, uh, I had been uh, part of youth theatres. Um, I was really into acting when I was a kid at school. And when I was about 14, 15, I joined the New Muth Theatre and at the same time the East End Soapbox Theatre, which was a community-based sort of hippie theatre that just descended on the streets of East Ham in a squat. And they came to our youth club and did workshops. And I was one of the oics that, that was attracted to that. OK. And uh, we did street theatre, uh, we did political plays... It was fantastic, but more importantly, relevant to this, is that I did some stand-up comedy. In about 1970-71, we put a play on at the Half Moon Theatre in Ailey Street, Orgate, which was a radical political theatre place, uh, uh, you know, Brecht and Chekhov, and a lot of actors cut their teeth there. But we were an amateur theatre group, and in, in the middle, in the interval, part of the play was I did stand-up comedy. So I was 16, however... It wasn't was my jokes. I didn't know about you had your own material. I just took a load of jokes because I enjoyed telling jokes and always yes, had so. them. Yeah. Always enjoyed being funny. Always understood uh, what you could do with that, the power of making people laugh uh, and what, how, you could, uh, how that could help you in social situations. But, but what was funny is I got heckled by someone saying, that's sexist, and I didn't even know what that meant. You know, this is 1970. This is a new language. I'm a working-class kid... Uh, so, so I gave it a go. I had a go. I always wanted to do it from that time, and I've always used humour, told jokes. Were you funny in that gig in the seventies? In that when you were sixteen? Yeah, I think I was for the most part. But I think I was just funny anyway uh, okay. at school, uh, in my gang. Even when I went back to university in in, in the mid eighties, I saw that as a, as a as a you know ready made audience for me to be funny. And you, I know that you allude on stage to uh, a coming from a criminal background. Well, that's more that's true, you know. I mean, that's more to do with association than deed. Okay. But I think most working class people from East London, I don't want to romanticize this or cliche, but would would say the same thing during that period, 60s, 70s, but certainly that's that's the that's the world I was brought up in for sure. And of course at that time you just think it's normal and natural and don't question it. So only afterwards when you think oh there are other people living in different ways. Because I think most people uh, in that life uh, mix with each other only because of that's the way it is, you know. Mm -hmm. 
so that's been a big influence on me, obviously, sure. But I think that's become more highlighted in the world of alternative stand-up comedy, which is was largely middle class or, or, and educated. So, so there's a, you know, that becomes more apparent if you come from that background when you walk into the world of stand-up comedy, I think. So when stand-up comedy was kind of kicking off in the sort of early days of the original, the original UK comedy store and okay. Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson, that kind of thing, where sure. were you in your life? Were you, did you have any contact uh, so with So what are you talking about, late 70s now, is that? Yeah, I would uh, think, yeah. Tony Allen, 79, 80. No, I wasn't uh, aware of modern stand-up comedy. I think that my... Subconscious influences, if you like, would be the same as everybody, the whole, the great British public, TV, radio, stand-up comedy has been part of British popular culture and entertainment ever since I can remember. So I would say that those have been my influences. Everybody that we've ever heard of were just on TV all the time, on the radio all the time. Mm. So I wasn't, didn't have a particular interest, it just was part of the backdrop of British culture. Okay, and so went from that from the course you went on. How long was it from completing that course to doing a gig, a non-course based? Well, we stuff? did the uh, we did the showcase show, of course, which I've still got on video. Oh wow! Yeah, on, okay, on video uh, on VHS. I haven't, I haven't. So <laughs> that's very funny because whenever I watch that, as I have done since, there are things about me there that I've thought God, it's taken me 20 years to find that again. Oh, go on, go on, like what? Well, there's a freedom, isn't there? You don't know what you're supposed to do. You don't know what you're supposed to talk about. You don't know what's acceptable, what people are going to laugh at. So there's a, there's a freedom of ideas and attitude. And although it wasn't accomplished, um, there were things, there was a looseness and a rawness uh, that you end up then losing to try and survive in the in the Saturday night world of hen parties and stag do's yeah. and jonglers. Uh, and I think it took me many years and only maybe over the, you know, maybe five years ago or where I thought, I've, I think I've found that, that, that naturalness. Okay. You know? Your, what you bring to a stand-up comedy show is so unlike what anyone else brings. And the... I mean, I, w- I won't say what I think it is. I'd like to hear you talk about what you think it is. But I'm, I'm putting in mind of a... a we gigged together at the Rose in Kingston for the Comedy Store a few years ago. OK. That's um, where you parked uh, your car miles away. <laughs> that's right. My car's only around the corner. I'll give you a lift. But the walk to your car was longer than my entire journey home. Yeah. It was then, it was. <laughs> I remember that. Even. I remember at the time, your, if not opening line, but opening remarks in, in the first couple okay. of minutes was I'm just going to let you get used to the idea oh, of Oh, OK, yeah, and yeah. And that, that, as an opening line, as an opening gambit, as a statement that you, at the time, I imagine, would have been wearing a very nice tracksuit. And yeah. just for people who, who aren't sure. looking at the accompanying photo of you, if you just describe yourself and well, what... Well, I do like what... wearing tracksuit tops, partly because I think it's a good look on stage... Uh, and also because I'm slightly addicted to collecting tracksuit tops. Okay. So I've got lots of them, so I'd I better use them. But I, I, I like the look on stage, tracksuit top and jeans or tracksuit top and, and combats. It's what I call smart casual. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and it's also a, a look that we don't associate with an older man. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Actually, where I think that look comes from is... Late 80s, early 90s rave look. Yes. That trainer's combat tracksuit top or trainer's combat denim jacket. That's a look very much from that period. And it's a postmodern, you know, uh, uh, 
pick and mix, cut and paste of of diverse styles that have gone on before. And it's a and very definite look, isn't it? It's a so. look that says this guy has really thought about what he's wearing in a way that if I wore those clothes on stage, it would look like I maybe haven't made much sure, of an effort. I've just grabbed sure. something. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's tricky. It, it's tricky. You've got to feel comfortable and relaxed and feel yourself. But also, you know that how you look, there's messages being sent out. The audience are looking at that. And I think, um, I think maybe as I've got older as well, because it's not just that I look gruff. Uh, um, I'm older than most comedians, and I, I started to realise that audiences would clap, and then as soon as they saw me stop clapping, not quite as if there'd been a mistake, but, oh, hold on a minute, who, 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 who's this, you know? Um, and I just picked that up and ran with it, and so often I walk on and say, well, when I realise they've stopped clapping and they're looking, I say, I'll oh, just spend some time here and give you a chance to get used to the idea of me. But that's such an erudite thing because to say they, as well. I'm not a likely-looking comedian, I don't think. But, um, but also, it really, not only does it give them that time and kind of call them out mm-hmm. on it, it kind of mentions what we're all thinking, which gets a big laugh. Of course, It yeah. also establishes you as someone who thinks in those kind of terms, mm-hmm. who thinks... Like, the phrase, the idea of me, yes. is I've never heard anyone t- okay. approach that kind sure. of logic. Sure. Like the, the, that's a very philosophical... It kind of has sure. has strata of kind of philosophy and, like, this is who I am. I've decided who I'm presenting, and I'm <laughs> yeah. aware that you're that, reading yeah, and what And this is I'm not presenting. what you're used to on a stand-up comedy stage as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and that, that does get a laugh. But I, I'm, I've always got stuff about appearance. And, and it's a mistake I make sometimes in that I do get trapped in clothes as if it's a costume because I get such good stuff about <laughs> my clothes. I can think of loads of bits of yours oh, that are connected boy, with clothes. Yeah, Crocs, so, yeah, caterpillars. Yeah, yeah, suits. <laughs> uh, um, and I was wearing African shirts for a while. Yes. I was wearing African shirts for a while because I do wear African shirts. Or African, and like big kind African of kaftan shirts. You know, if I go to, yeah, if I go to... Uh, my wife's from West Africa and if I go to a wedding or something. I like to wear an African print. It's it's a nice thing. And I had so much... Mi- I mean, I had... I don't know what you're thinking. It's a middle-class dad at WOMAD or, you know, it's a Buddhist right said Fred tribute act or it's a... It's just... I had so many. Um, but my favourite one was it's difficult to know what to wear in this weather. As, a, <laughs> as an opening line. Now... But to, what I really like doing is, and there's a debate around this, that, and I'm on the side of Steve Martin, is whether to say hello or not when you walk on stage. Now, oh. there's a debate. It's a small debate. Uh, I know Steve Martin's involved, so I'm pleased <laughs> that I'm in such good company. But I don't think I should say hello. I think compares can say hello. But I think that's a golden moment missed where you can, you can lay down your comedy credentials. And I think saying hello is just, OK. Or sesh, and, and worse, hello... How are we? Oh, you know, I cringe when I see comedians doing that. It's ingratiating. And at any point, I'm just, I'm, I'm on the lookout for ingratiation. Uh, ingratiation, sentimentality, that's, it should be your comedy that gets the audience to you, not how are we or anything like that. So I love to open with that, you know, I love to open with a thing. And it shows a certain confidence as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. So, so, uh, so I walked on for a while when I was going through that phase of wearing those shirts on stage, walking up to say, they're looking at me, an unlikely big skinhead-looking bloke wearing a, an ethnic shirt, and to open with, it's so difficult to know what to wear in this weather, isn't it? Now, I ran with that for a while. Now, it's not a, it's not a, obviously it's not an original line, it's a cliché line, but 
I was uh, watching um, Max Miller at some point after that stage or during that stage. I go back to him often. He's somebody that's got things, was doing things that I really admire, particularly that uh, breaking the fourth wall and conspiring with the audience and, and saying, look, I shouldn't say this. The manager's in the wings and he leans forward to the audience as if he's conspiring with them and being naughty. And I, I love all that. But I was watching him again, and I've probably seen this a thousand times, and halfway through, he's, and he, he used to wear very flamboyant suits. He went, oh, I know, it's difficult to know what to wear in this weather, isn't it, love? And I thought, oh, no, I hope people don't think I've stolen that line because I hadn't. It was just it's a line. Um, so I stopped doing it because of that, because I'm so funny. Like, I wouldn't want people to think that I've... Whereas I spoke okay. to Ross uh, Noble, because he's a big uh, Max Miller fan. He said, oh, I wouldn't worry about it. He said, I still use his line sometimes. Because <laughs> you know, Max Miller can be quite camp on stage as well. And he has a line that Ross uses from time to time that we shared, and it's, oh, no, not anymore, love, not anymore, like that. But, <laughs> oh, no, I do, I do deny, you know, things just those. Um, so, so, but I often get trapped in, uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm the, this, this, this tracksuit top jeans or combat look, um, I'm, I'm working, on, I work on this sort of persona, I look like a racist granddad, which is a, <laughs> yeah. and I came across that because uh, my uh, my children are mixed race, but I've got a sort of late in life surprise baby, and I, when I used to take him out, I obviously looked like a bit old, maybe too old to be his dad, or, or, or uh, certainly in working class areas, <laughs> but um, I'd be out with him and he'd be small and brown and with his big afro, and they'd be me all mean and white looking, and... <laughs> I noticed that people would go up to me going, are you, are you wanting to know who I was? Yeah. Intrigued by the scenario and, and saying, uh, are you out with your granddad? <laughs> oh, yeah, they're, 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 you know, trying to get the answer. And I thought, yeah, I bet they're thinking, uh, uh, you know, and this is us, isn't it? And I imagine, I bet they're thinking, oh, I bet that's the racist granddad whose daughter's had a baby from a black partner, but now he's become all liberalised <laughs> through the experience of having a mixed-race child. And the fact is, that is a social phenomenon, you know. And yeah. I, but I, I'm, So that's where I've come up with the concept of the racist granddad, but it, it does kill every time. I've seen uh, you just destroy with that bit, yeah. and I'm laughing remembering the bit and how well it goes and yeah. how much you get out of it. Yeah. It's such an incredibly rich observation. It's like sure. such a rich seam whereby... Sure. Your knowledge that you look like that and the specificity That's of like, what I like it's about exactly it. this. Yeah, yeah. The specificity is important to me in all things really because of being unique. That thing of wanting to be unique on stage. I'll 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 avoid topics that I think are being done by other people or language or terms or phrases. It's not an obsession, but I think it's important to be original. And unique in the sense, like, would you would you phrase a joke a particular way, and then if you hear that phrasing, not the same joke, but just sure. the, if you hear the phrasing in a club, would you go, "I'm going to move yeah, on"? Yeah, I, I, I mean, actually, uh, Adam Bloom and myself have have conversations about tech, the technical side. He's very technical, Adam, and I, even if the key word should be the last word. If that seems too constructed and convoluted to me, I'd rather forego that being the bigger laugh and, because I want it to sound more natural. So although you know, we are concise with our language, I still like it to make it come across as natural conversation, even if I've thought <clears throat> of something that would work in the routine, if it looks too written to me uh. or too contrived, even though it will get laughs... I'll drop it or avoid it because I think no, that just seems too constructed and too too joke like. Can you can you think of an example of something that you've dropped on that basis? Um, 
It's a difficult question. No, I can't no, at the no, moment, fine. but maybe yeah, I yeah. can come back. Sure, uh, sure, I'll sure. Come back because that. that that I think that's important to all comedians, really, in terms of technique. That that uh, uh, often the last word should be the word that gets the laugh, but. In, and I know we are performing and we're not actually being totally natural because it's a performance, but if it doesn't suit my conversational style, I think, no, I don't mind, have it yeah. in the middle, the laugh will come. And, it, and it's, it's interesting, isn't it, because there are so many of those rules and in inverted commas in comedy mm. that you sort of feel like if you see someone teaching those rules, you think there is the danger of it becoming homogenised. Sure. And actually, I'm sure I read something about um, a conversation, like it was at the back of a DVD of Lee and Herring from years ago, about the, 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 or maybe the back of one of Stuart Lee's books, about the word wool and how everyone is, everyone's so keen to get K's and P's, you know, plosive letters into their punchline words because K's and P's are funny, that actually you, by saying, by saying wool... Like, you could get a laugh out of it simply because of its lack of plosives. Sure, sure, for every sure. rule, that it's almost like in chess, for every strategy, there's a counter-strategy. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. Um, although I do believe that all comedians should adhere to some things like uh, uh, being concise. You know, the idea that stand-up is, is like poetry rather than the novel writing is something that I think is relevant and... Unwanted words. I don't want unwanted words. So you can strip it down but still seem natural and not contrived, for sure. Something that seems... I'm just going to put a pin in an idea for later on. Okay. The, the I'm so excited about that idea of not saying hello. I kind of... Part of me wants to mine you for other things you think along those lines. And I was wondering whether like a good way of doing that okay. might be to <laughs> ask what things you see other comics do that feel like missed opportunities or mistakes sure. that might be quite a good way well, that's way a of... big one of course that's a big one when i if i if a compare says hello i think i allow that because a compare has a, a, a slightly different relationship with an audience and i think they can say hello how are you well you know but I do think that's a missed opportunity. And I see it so often. It is. And I'm, I'm thinking now we? I'm never going to say hello again. Not even how are you, but how are we? Oh, 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 oh And the, the one at the moment is are we well? Which oh, McIntyre, so McIntyre popularised. And so really, really, many newer okay. acts and older acts right. say are we well without knowing that that's the thing McIntyre popular oh, without seeming to register it. Yeah, but absolutely. the we thing I don't like. I don't yeah. like anything that's ingratiating. Yeah. I don't like people talking about their kids. Now... Think you think you could talk about your kids if it's leading to something else or it's leading to a, a wider topic. Sure. I talk about my son because I think he's gay, so I've got a whole routine about is my son gay or not. But what I'm actually talking about is is attitudes towards homosexuality. Sure, but I'm using my personal experience. So I'm not. Once they start mentioning their name and how old they are, I think <laughs> you might as well bring, be bringing out their photographs and and. You know, and all these do something go, ah, like that. If you're getting, that's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be getting laughter. We're supposed to be getting that. that I have the same know. thing with the material about experiences on drugs. Okay. And it's like someone telling you their dreams. Do yes. you know what I mean? It's like, yes, yes. sure. Yes. Yeah, sure. I know. Get to the, get the thing. Now, the. So other things. <laughs> well, um, I think it, at the moment, I mean, I, uh, this is an ad, but it's, it's relevant. I've, I've started a, stand-up comedy workshop. It's, it's, it's a six-week workshop, but also I do one-on-one. Mentoring is the term. I hate the term mentoring, but it's the current term, so I'm having to sure. buy into the current language. Um, 
And one of the reasons I decided to do that was because there are certain things that I see that I think, no, someone has got to stamp this out. <laughs> you know, someone has got to go, no, we've got, someone's got to stop this. And one of the things uh, are comedians that copy subject matter or even not quite jokes, but premises. So, mm-hmm. so for example, there was a period... It's still going on to some extent where a lot of comedians, mostly the black comedians, felt the need to do an impression of a West African accent, a Nigerian accent, a traffic warden, their mum, whoever. But always the accent, the power was in... Always it was that this character is... You know, they're patronising the accent. They're basically, they were saying, look, hey, look, this is funny. The accent became the punchline. Mm-hmm. Their ability to do the accent of this, you know, this this non-metropolitan, wide-eyed sort of African person who hasn't quite got things right. I don't care if it is your mum, it's racist, it's patronising, and everyone's doing it, why would you want to do that? And my ex-wife is Nigerian. I don't think people who walk around in Nigeria going, aren't we funny when we speak? Isn't our accent funny? The only person who did it properly was Omid Jalili, who did the accent, but he put it into the body of um, a, 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 an actor who was an intellectual. So they were verbose, but it was funny. It was this theatre company. They, was, they were part of this theatre company. It sounded very funny because the person with the accent wasn't the victim. It yeah. was funny, but they were clever. The person was clever. So we, so what I did is I, I thought, I've had enough of this. So I didn't write a joke as such, but I was in a, in a, in a dressing room with a black comedian. I said, look, I'm getting sick of this. How funny would the accent be if someone put it into the voice of a doctor telling you your child's got leukaemia? Let's see how funny a Nigerian accent sounds then. And they went, can I do that? And I went, yes, and they did, Okay, (laughs) And they said they did it. Well, they were an accent that's quite edgy and political, so I don't know. Their their idea of success is different from... I still like laughs. I think they like... (laughs) I think they like... uh, uh, They like people to be thinking more. But um, at the moment, um, and this will place this interview in time... uh, there's the there's the legacy, and I blame uh, I blame what's his name, the Cockney comedian with the long black hair, what's Mickey his, Mickey Flanagan for the fingering phenomena. Yeah. Now, <laughs> yeah. now I don't know how long this has been going on, but but acts using the word fingering. Yeah. Okay. Now it gets an effect. It it's gets, an in, it's an inherently funny sounding yes, word. It is, it's a yes. funny concept. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's happening next the first to a person bin. I, I think I heard use it <laughs> sure. in the context of uh, something about the seventies and fingering and. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, even acts, even acts that are accomplished, uh, uh, that are individual at the store or whatever, I've seen do it. So there's there's the fingering phenomena, and then fingering behind a skip. Yeah, and next, then next to the a bin. Weatherspoons yeah. phenomena. Yeah. With it, the amount of times I've walked in and out of comedy clubs where someone's either mentioning weatherspoons or fingering, I thought I've had enough of this. So I gave, I said, look, I gave an act whose act uh, relies a lot on put downs. Okay, I said, try this. I've had enough of this. Uh, you, madam, couldn't even get fingered in Weatherspoons on Curry Club night. And she said, it kills, it kills. It's not something I could do. It wouldn't work for my, my persona. So, so part of me doing the workshop is to say, look, do not do these things. Do not do this. It's seductive. It's, you think, well, I'll do something on fingering. Or, and, um, and originality is just so important. Maybe more important than anything else. I think uniqueness and originality. So this is Jeff. 
Again, I mean, this is an all-time... I feel like that's become... Is that a trope? Is that a thing I say? You can hear how much I'm enjoying this, but I was I was absolutely loving it. We spoke for an hour and 40, so there is a good 40 minutes of extra stuff with Jeff uh, available at the Insiders Club for anyone that would like to go there, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to support the show, get access to all the extra bits um, for as little as £2 a month, although that may be going up. More on that later, but it's, uh, it's a good time to join now if you fancy hooking into all of those bits and bobs. Um, and all of the other projects and the workspace and the, the, the inner circle of the ComCom community. And if you are interested in uh, more stuff than just the podcast, but don't want to go as far as becoming an insider, please do check out the Facebook group. There have been some fantastic bits of uh, thing on there. I, I read bits of thing. Well, well articulated, Stu. I feel like I have been pruning and cultivating that group to the extent that now almost everything put in there, everything posted, is a really, like, people are really bringing their A-game. So this is, there's about 6,500 members at the moment, um, and comedy fans just like you who want to share thoughts, experiences, and uh, who want to promote things they've seen. If you yourself are a comic and you want to promote in it, please get in touch with me. Email me info at comedianscomedian.com because I try to make it non-promotional as far as that's possible. If you're a previous guest of the show, then obviously things are a little bit different, but do get in touch um, because it's not just a tool. It's a living, breathing community to which everyone is contributing extremely well indeed at the moment. So a big pat on the back for everyone in the ComCom group. I hope you will join us there. Um, other stuff to talk about. The tour is on sale. You know that, comedianscomedian.com slash tour. On the 28th of February, we are going to be releasing uh, the second leg of the tour, which are all the awesome dates later this year. I'm going to be touring around much further afield than the southwest and London. Um, and the southwest and London end of it starts uh, in Norden Farm in Maidenhead uh, on the 22nd. So if you're coming to that, I'll see you there. I'm really looking forward to getting back touring again. Who knew having a break actually makes you, like, thirsty to get back to it? So uh, let's see how long that lasts. But um, I've got very high hopes of Maidenhead, and I've been very excited. I think I mentioned this last time. There's no need to go into it again. I'm really pleased with how it's selling. It's I feel like it's kicking off. So um, please come along and see that. Comedianscomedian.com slash tour. Check out Jeff's stuff online. We talk briefly, uh, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet at this point in the show, but we talk briefly about a podcast that Jeff features on that he does with Tom Ward. The name of which escapes me at the moment, but I will pop it in the show notes. Do check that out. Um, and, I mean, where to see Jeff? Go and see him at the store. If you can get to London, just get on Jeff's website, find out when he's next at the comedy store and go and see him at the store. I think that's, he's one of those people, I feel like that's a really natural home for him. And I've just seen him crushed there. Oh, that's such an American thing to say. Yeah, some of you are American. Well, you know crushing? He does that. And of course, if you would like to come and see the podcast live, then please make a beeline for Podfest Birmingham at the Birmingham Town Hall on the 23rd of March at 1pm. Guest still to be announced. Mysterious, hey? Get tickets for that online and uh, you can tweet me at comcompod or email me info at comedianscomedian.com if you'd like to get in touch. Let's get back to this conversation with Jeff Innocent. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
when you talk about stand-up as being more like poetry than a novel... Yes. That... Talk to me more about that. I well, just want to sit and learn all the things well, you what, think. Well, what, what that is, is... I mean, I mean, it's saying as much as you can with the least amount of words, really. And poetry does it. Poetry knows that. That's what poetry is. That's what makes poetry the greatest thing in the use of language to me. And I think stand-up should be like that. And although we, it's an informal conversation with an audience, I still don't think there should be, at the end of the day, uh, all these little linguistic crutches that people use in everyday life. I think stand-up comedians should, should, should not be using those. You know, even, even to get informality, I don't think we should be cluttering up um, I mean, a joke is the perfect example of a poem, isn't it? It's, it's getting to the point as quickly as possible. And that's what's great about jokes, about, you know, the succinct, concise nature of a joke. This, talking about the little verbal ticks in between things, there's a thing I've identified which I'm sure will make you grind your teeth, which uh, I'm calling a bridging platitude, when a comic hops from one subject to another yes. by saying... Oh, love's tough, isn't it? What do you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just Shows something like, oh, kids are hard. You know? Yeah, I know. Oh, life's I know, crazy right I know. now. Every time yeah, I see those, I know, those. I know. oh, no, my that's God. That's good, that's good. I'm with you on that one. I like what you call it, a bridging platitude. A bridging that's platitude. That's, uh, that's my um, only yeah, that's term. <laughs> it's true, it's true. I'm very big on links, though. I'm very big on, um, on making my things link uh, without having to do that. Um, and and what I sometimes do is have a starting point. Even if I know I'm taking this 20 minutes of material to a gig, I'll have a starting point, which I will always use more or less, about appearance. And then I might change my mind about which topic I go to next. So I enjoy making them link casually, seamlessly, in a different way. In the moment. Yes, yes, yes. So that's, that's, that's not as exciting, of course, of going on with nothing and making it up. But it's it's it keeps me sharp and focused, and I find new ways of of approaching topics. So I yeah so so but I never go yeah anyway. Well, the twentieth first century eh? that's, <laughs> that hasn't turned out the way we thought. Has it? I mean, you know, that's so broad, so broad. Hey, life, eh? Cool. What about life? Hey. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you a little bit... Well, I've, I've got some questions for you about joke structure because uh, you... <laughs> I wrote it. This is a joke so funny of yours that when I saw you do it live, I took my phone out and wrote it down. Oh, and really? kind of, oh, okay. I'll talk to Jeff about this one day. Okay, yeah. The line is, it's about... And it's, it's a fairly familiar joke format. But again, the richness of the idea, you're talking about how your toddler's uh, uh, school, or sort of play group, oh, makes... Yeah. It make, it's so diverse, the, the inference oh, is, it's so diverse, yeah, and the yeah. line is, it makes Sesame Street look like a meeting of the Aryan Brotherhood. Oh, I don't even remember that line. God, that made my head explode. I People love that come joke. Up to you. When you've been doing it for years, sometimes you'll have great stuff, but because it hasn't proved so popular on a Friday and Saturday night, but intellectually, it's, it's lovely, you know. You, you end up dropping stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but people, they're the things people come up and remind you of. Yeah. And I don't even remember the context. I mean, I remember the general... The joke, I think, was about... Basically about... The overall theme was history, people in history. And people have, don't have... There's a, a, la- a loss of a sense of history. And um, that's tied into theories about post-modernity, actually. But that's not about comedy, so we won't get into that. But... One of the things that always winds me up about people is when if you mention something, they go, that's before my time. Now, that's part, that was part of that overall <laughs> yes, routine okay. as well. And I just think, well, 
you know, you'll mention a song, won't you, from the 50s, and thought, oh, that's before my time, and you think, well, well, you know, what about Beethoven? Yeah. You know, what about Shakespeare? But, of course, in reality, there are classical themes that, that, that exist forever, and there are popular culture themes that, that, that do come and go. But that was about, yeah, going to my nursery and the slavery thing. It was about the... I don't know how I got to that part, though, but it was about it was about the real story of me taking my son to the nursery, then wanting him to dress up. Oh, yes, for a photograph, for like a sepia... Victorian poor, that was it. That was it, it, the Victorian poor. Victorian poor, and I thought, wow, they're romanticising this period. The Victorian poor, disease, starvation, Mm. children dying on the streets. I thought, how can you be making sepia-tinted romantic pictures out of this? So then I did the the switch comparison technique, which I always don't like because it's a technique, so I like to try and hide it, but of, you know, that... Well, hey, hey, you wouldn't get that, that, you know, so it was, um, (laughs) you know, about sort of... So I'm thinking, this is is one of the tragic periods in my immediate working-class East London culture's history... and I thought, well, well you're going to go up to the uh, to the black kids and go. We've got a bit of a slavery theme going on next week. That's what that was about. And sure. I did a, I did a three on that, I think. Um, but and I can't remember about why. I can't remember where the Aryan Brotherhood Sesame Street thing comes from. I can't remember what the link is. But wow, what a thing for you to remember! Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So I don't usually do similes. Do you know that? I don't. I don't okay. I, I just I don't even like them. Okay. I think it's another thing that people get taught. Makes X look like Y. Yeah. And some people, the whole act. Just yeah. hinges on a oh, simile or I saw someone, analogy. Or... I saw someone do three pullback and reveals oh, in a row. Well, well, three in a yeah. row. And they were, every one of them worked because the audience don't... They just couldn't yeah. see the... The straight was invisible avoid, to the audience. Stuart, are the other things I've always tried to avoid? Similes, pullback and reveals, rules of three. I think the rule of three is probably uh, uh, one that, that exists because there's a natural... There's mm. a naturalness about... This, this, and this, or there's three examples, but they're the things I try to avoid, and also uh, would try to teach people to avoid as well to make to make their stand-up comedy seem more natural and and conversational. So but you can hide though, you can hide technique, can't you? I mean, I sometimes talking about errs and ours. I don't like people that stumble and err and are, but sometimes if you've written a routine that just looks too linear and and smooth and written, I've often, in the middle, I'm sure as we all go, and goes, uh, well, you know... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Try to mess it up a bit yeah. so that it doesn't look too written, actually. And, and how are you starting from the word go? Do you, okay. do you... Let's talk about turnover of material. That's one of my weak... I think that's one of my weaknesses. I'm lazy. I don't spend a lot of time at my desk as the starting point... But here's how I usually work then. Because this, this, actually this, this podcast should be about technique and you're, you're into that, aren't you? You're into yeah, talking 100%. about that. I'm sorry, we yeah. haven't really spoken about no, that. No, we, we, ha- we have oh, loads, okay. but yeah, let, let's, um, let's okay. keep Okay, I, I going think my writing technique is that I'll spend time at the desk with topics or headings or premises, uh, uh, you know, so that desk time, which I think is the one aspect. Just, of and writing. just just to pause on that for a second, mm-hmm. those topics and premises are coming from where? Just notebooks. Oh, and- uh, okay. So if the if I'm lucky enough, right, right, okay. Let's say I, everything I talk about, I like to start off anecdotally to get me into the topic: religion, science, sexuality, race. I would always rather start by a real anecdote, if possible. And usually I'm lucky enough and old enough to have real anecdotes. That, that, uh, and then I will use that autobiographical anecdote to lead me into the topic. 
Um, whatever it's about. I don't like to flag up the topic. And I think that's another thing I don't like acts doing. As soon as you like me to talk about this, yeah, I don't love like. it. I hate, not hate, but I don't like an actor who walks and goes, hey, racism, what's that all about? Think, oh, God, yeah, OK. And then they go into their, to their routine about them not being racist. Yeah. The art is to reveal your position within the routine. That's how I like it to be. Okay. Great. Not right. Because again, it's a missed opportunity. Yes, isn't it? it is. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, I'm working on a routine at the moment. I tell you, I've been working on this phrase because I haven't actually put the time in. I know it just needs some time. I, when my last son was born, so he's 14 now. I was uh, what, 50 or whatever, and uh, my wife's considerably younger than me. Because I'm in show business. <laughs> so, um, and so it was a very long labour. And eventually they said, look, it's an emergency cesarean. So they rushed her off. Became a little bit sort of... Became a little bit scary then. Uh, and I was stuck in this room with, with a nurse who happens to be African. And, and there's a reason why I say that she's African. And we're standing there and um, she went, well, it's in God's hands now. And I immediately thought, Wow. <laughs> Really? <laughs> I've come to the wrong place here. <laughs> but I just... Uh, so I wrote that down because I thought that would be a great uh, beginning for me to talk about science and, and religion, you know, without saying, hey, everybody, let's talk about science and religion. Sure. So I would always, almost everything I talk about, I would rather start like that. Because that way, you can end up be talking about quite highbrow topics without the audience knowing. Um, so me talking, for example, a current routine I have is about having a gay son or thinking my son's gay or not sure. And, and really, I'm now talking about, you know, you know, liberal attitudes towards towards sexuality. And I do realise that often my audience are not people that have liberal attitudes towards. But I think through me, my persona and anecdotalising the beginnings of it, I can now talk about sexuality instead of going, hey, let's talk about sexuality. Mm. And I... That's might be one of the things that I do that not everybody else does. I'm not sure, you know. Just as a, maybe as a, a tangent, when you talk about your audience not necessarily having those attitudes, mm-hmm. I'm interested in who you consider your audience to be, and and also whether, given that on the surface you might not appear stereotypically as erudite mm-hmm. and, and as sure. sophisticated a thinker mm-hmm. as you in fact are, or as educated sure. as you are, and I wonder. Uh, I, I know that you get kind of comic mileage and probably a degree of personal frustration out of the fact that uh, that you know people make assumptions about you, and I'm interested in who you think your audience are and what assumptions do you make of them. Okay, um, I don't think I have a specific tribe as such. I always thought Tony Allen was all saying you, you'll find your tribe, you'll find your tribe, but I actually think now, particularly over the last five years, where I think I've found another gear. I think they're all my tribe. Every age group, every ethnicity, you know, every every regional group. Because I've the reason I'm saying that is that I've found equal success with all of those audiences. Um, so that's who I think my audience are now. Uh, assumptions about audiences, that's the funniest thing, because after all these years, I will still, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, Look at an audience before they come in, or while you're waiting, you're in a dressing room, you look out and think, oh, no, 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 <laughs> that's not my audience. I don't know why we do that. It must be some psychological resistance to going on or something, because uh, it can be any irrational thing, kind of the way they're dressed or 
what handbags they've got. Or they've got heads. No, they're not. They've got arms. They're not mine. You know, and yeah. we all do it. And I do it, and I'm always wrong. Always, always wrong. Uh, and you just go out there and have an equally fun time. Um, how they see me, of course, um, I wonder if sometimes people are disappointed and that I'm not how I come across. And, uh, and of course, oh, well, they think it's always going to be all yeah, nice and racist. Course. I mean, yeah. I mean actually, <laughs> sure. only last year I did a gig in a, in a social club, not a corporate, just an evening of comedy that they have, and the guy that runs it came up to me afterwards and, and let your listeners hear this because... Those people that think the world has changed, it hasn't changed that much. He met me outside the club and he went, right, there's no blacks or is in, so you can do what you want. Seriously. And I was shocked. Even I was shocked. And I just, wow, 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 this is still going on. Jesus. And I think we forget. I think that a lot of middle-class liberal people, white middle-class liberal people are protected and don't yeah. have a clue that those attitudes are still still quite quite. The, the, the stereotype that exists of, like, the racist London yeah. taxi driver probably would say different things to someone that looked like you than they yes. would say to things that yes. looked like me. Um, and, uh, 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 of course, uh, another thing that's happened more recently, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing some stuff on this, but I'm not doing the routine, but I'm just saying to you what happens to me quite a lot. I don't do many corporates, hardly ever, two a year or something. I'm not, you know, I don't... But, but or oh, that kind of gig, I often increasingly have someone come up to me saying, I suppose you've got to be careful of political correctness these days, as if, as if you know, oh, yeah, what a yeah. shame, I used to be much funnier yeah, yeah, yeah. when we were racist, you know. Um, and I think that's partly because of the way I look as well. They mm. assume I'm some old-school comedian that would rather be telling racist jokes than, than not. But as you obviously said uh, more fundamentally the fact that I look one way and am another way and my whole act is hung on that idea and I've, I enjoy that very much and I, I, I've had a lot of fun and a lot of my stuff is about that and of course my life is like that so it's not just that I'm making up jokes sure. about that my, my whole life on a daily basis is, is people making assumptions about me based on the way I look and Stuart, mate, I get into arguments, I get into incidents and arguments, and I know it's because people have risen up in an aggressive way when I haven't even, you know, particularly if, if someone's not white, they, they assume I'm racist. It could be some exchange. Uh, mm. and, and so I find myself in situations where I'm having to back off and think, oh, dear, they've obviously thought I'm this kind of person. Um, do, you, you know. do you need to police what you say in a comedy club more carefully, like if you're dealing with a heckler, do mm -hmm. you need to be aware that you that they might take you for oh. being more aggressive than you're being? Well, I probably do, but sometimes don't because it's, you know, you, you can't remember everything sometimes we do on stage. Kind of, well, that, that's a, a good thing to say because recently I was doing... I don't really get heckled very much. Um, and I don't know necessarily think it's about the way I look. I think it's if you can keep them laughing, they haven't got time to heckle. But every now and again, there'll be someone who's drunk. But I think more than being heckled are people that are just disruptive in some way, talking or not paying attention to my brilliant ideas, you know. And here, here's... <laughs> here. yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head there with yeah. a lot of what Excuse comics me, think you're about. Talking, sir, and and yeah. I was in one of those situations. This is also about not being in the room. And I'm... This is so important about being in the room, isn't it? And it's a thing people forget because I think a lot of comedians just take their act with them from gig to gig. You're dragging that act from the last gig and you're not really in that room. 
And also, you're, if you're doing exactly the same stuff in exactly the same way in the same order, you might as well be an actor going with the script. So I think being in the room, something could happen. Here's an, I mean, here's an example of being in the room, is that you walk on with your agenda. We all walk on with our agenda, our opening lines, our strategy. All it takes is someone to shout something out before you even get to the microphone. Your agenda is all out, and you have to adapt and, and work around that. And I... It took me ages to get over that. I used to hate it when people did that. I used to be defensive and aggressive. But now I leave space for anything to happen. But I was somewhere recently and there was a man in the front with a couple of women. He was obviously gay, very camp at least anyway, extremely camp. He was talking, he was being very camp. And I <laughs> I said, can you stop being gay? Um, now, of course, <laughs> there... The audience went cold at me, and I think, oh, God, no, they... Because I knew I had my gay sun routine coming up that would get me out of that. Of course. But what I really wanted to say, and this is... being What I said to him is, look, being gay is not enough, mate. Because, you, know, you know, he's obviously a young man who, at the moment, his whole identity is wrapped up in his campness and his gayness and his, his girlfriends. And I wanted, at the same time, probably because of my own son, say to him, look, I wouldn't want my son to go out and just be camp, as if that's enough... I'm just gay, and I was being like that. But of course, they don't know I've got a gay son. They don't know that actually. Um, you know, so it's just it, yeah. They see. don't have any idea of your credentials. No, They're no, still no. going on. Yes, this guy sure, looks like sure. a fascist. And, yeah, and, uh, you know, and they're the mistakes one can make even after all of these years. Uh, I still make schoolboy errors, uh, and they're usually about not being in the room. They usually, in fact. I don't have a set list as such. I have I have topics that I'm going to move from that topic to that topic. But every time I rewrite that, as we always do, you know, we, we rewrite that. <laughs> yeah, I'm right the same six words down again a thousand there, times. You know, it's so old sometimes. I mean, <laughs> I've got one that looks like the Turin Shroud. It's all jokes about the Roman occupation. And uh, But I always put be in the room. I have to remind myself, because especially if you're going from one gig to another, you're taking that energy uh, and it's a different audience, a different vibe, a different energy, a different lock to, to sort of work on. Uh, and um, I have to remind myself of that even after all of these years um, to go on. And, and I mean, I remember in the uh, old days at Jongas walking on, before you even get to the mic, someone would shout out, right, said Fred. So it didn't matter what your agenda was, it's already now yeah. being determined by their response to you. So that's why I, in, when I do workshop with people, that's one of my big things actually, because we all walk on with our opening line. Um, and that can be, you might have to scupper that. Um, yeah. But but certainly the way I look and how I am is is probably the whole act hangs on that. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun not being... I mean, recently, I've got one or two phrases. Because I, I live in the borough of Newham. I've lived in East London all my life. So I've got one or two phrases in different languages. Uh, so the other day there was some... Uh, there were some people in... They were Indian, um, but they were Punjabi, which is Sikh. Yeah, they speak Punjabi. And I've got a couple of phrases in Punjabi. Uh, so it, it just gave me such a thrill for the audience <laughs> to see me speak Punjabi. Uh, and it's funny to see somebody who looks like they wouldn't bother to learn another language, yeah. let alone an Indian language. Um, so, yeah, I do enjoy being one way, looking one way and being another. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's interesting, you mentioned Mickey Flanagan earlier on, mm -hmm. and I think he manages to... He has capitalised very well on 
the that sounds really negative. I didn't mean uh, didn't mean it to have no, any negative that, that, connotations, but no, no, the, sure. the the dynamic between his working class origins sure. and his self educated, you know, sure. his move into middle classness. Sure. That yeah. is that's you know a huge. That's the thing he hangs a lot of yes, it on. It is, yeah. Um, and um, I remember Mickey was one of those people who was hanging around at the top of the circuit when I started. Okay. With everyone going, well, he destroys every gig he does. Sure. Why isn't he famous? Sure. And I think. There, I think there's a similar feeling about you in that sure. you're you're just you're so uh, well, consistently excellent. Sure. You're one of those acts who. Well, that's very kind of you to yeah, say well, so. Sure. Um, uh, I think I've always been older than Mickey, of course. I don't. Okay. I think stand-up comedy is becoming younger. Sure. I'm not being cynical. I don't care. It's embracing younger people. It's becoming more like music. There are a lot more younger people doing stand-up comedy. Um, uh, I don't think. I, I think there are lots of major differences between Mickey and I as well. Um, I think I don't think Mickey is confrontational in any way, whereas I like to do that. I like to challenge people's perceptions. Um, so there, there, maybe I'm more political in a cultural way than Mickey. Um, I don't have as mass appeal, um, although we do have similar backgrounds. But also I... I don't. Uh, I haven't recognised that 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 working class middle class is that your phone relationship? Oh, that might be uh, in the same way as Mickey does. That is my phone. Apologies. That's quite right. But I'm not going to take that. <laughs> not one of those. Hey, a younger comedian would. Hey, hey, you know that, Stuart. A younger comedian would be trying to charge you. You're not, even, you're not even looking at who it, it is. It's incredible. It's amazing. Amazing. Um, so, so, so I think Mickey has a more mass, wider appeal than me. I think actually, um, and good luck to him. I mean, actually, I always consider myself to be more like some of the earlier comedians, more the alternative, so-called alternative comedians. And I think when I started, that's what I thought I was going to be, you know, like that 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 band of comedians that were around at the time. Uh, so I don't know. No, no, I've never thought that at all. That, uh, that idea of... Because um, I don't think... I, I mean, I, there are certain things Mickey talks that he regards as being middle class that I, I, I don't, you know... Uh, you know, like having a cappuccino or something, or, or but th- those, those sort of cultural touch, those that people recognise. But no, no, I think Mick is great and he's brilliant and he's he's got a very wide appeal. I don't know if I've got that wide appeal. I have a tendency to, to I don't know, want to be a little bit edgy and confrontational. And I think that can, can stop you. But I don't... Listen, I, I think the only reason that I haven't, you know, been successful in that kind of way is that for many years I never took this seriously anyway. I just was so happy to be doing it. And during the Jongles days, everyone was earning money anyway. Mm. I never really thought about it as a career. I was just happy and I thought this was fun. Maybe for 10, 15 years I just thought, oh, this is fun. And then I think I only really... I mean, I always had a sense of integrity, but I never turned over a lot of material. We were all earning money. We could be lazy. Everyone was working every weekend. Um... Uh, and the Edinburgh thing, don't forget that Edinburgh solo show is quite a new thing in the history of stand-up comedy. It's not... So I've always, I've always enjoyed the gladiatorial rough and toughness of, of, of the circuit and circuit clubs. I've never aspired necessarily to be uh, a solo show Edinburgh act, although I do understand the intellectual possibilities of doing, doing a, an hour show. So I've never really had those ambitions. But what happened, I think, is... 
with the demise of genres, with the squeeze on the circuit and less gigs, uh, what we're saying, five years for sure, over the last five years, I think what I did was thought, ah, maybe I should have taken it a bit more seriously in the early days, and maybe I wouldn't have been on the circuit now and been on the telly and doing all these... But I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not someone that would ever go on a panel show or a, any of those programmes that make people famous. They're not for me. I, I, I despise those parlour games... Well, now it's your turn to be funny. Now it's your turn to say something about what is just not what I do. And I understand that's the game you have to play in order to have that wider appeal. And I think partly I'm, that's what makes me more like some of the earlier comedians, I think. And it's an age thing and where I'm from, I, I wouldn't be interested in, in, in doing that. And all agents want you to do that, of course, because that's the game, not necessarily the game. Some people enjoy that and are good at that and some people are entertained by that, but it's not, it's not for me. So I think that's helped me back. Is, is, is there any element of it not being for you that isn't a deliberate choice? Is there any element of it which might have been making yourself vulnerable in a different way to how you would ordinarily manage your vulnerability? Possibly. Well, in terms of a performer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, 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 that's a good point. Um, I'm not... I've never been one for charade. Maybe when I was younger, yeah, but I've never... I've got my thing that I want to say. It's a bit like it's funny comparing does that to you as well. I like to come on, make my impact, get off like an impact comic. Wow, what, what, what was that all about? Yeah. When you're comparing, you think, oh, I've done my impact. I've got to go on and make another impact. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there could be something about that that I'm, you know, I don't know if it's about vulnerability. Yeah, yeah maybe you're right. There, there, maybe that's a good point. But I'm not, it's, I think what it is that I'm not, yeah, uh, I like making people laugh um, for sure. But I don't like being contrived, and, and I think a lot of panel comedy is, is contrived. And uh, so, but I think what happened with the Jolas going is I thought, ah, right, this is this could be tricky now. I need to earn a living. That's because I, I got interviewed. So I can't remember who it was, and they said, "What's your what drives you when you're coming?" I thought, well, you know, if I'm not funny, I don't earn any money, and I can't pay the rent and feed my kids. And I know that's probably not what people want to hear, but. I think I've always gone about my business like a tradesperson, like a bricklayer or something, where if my last wall isn't straight, then I'm not going to get employed to build another wall. So that's why... And maybe I've never earned any money as well out of comedy. Now, this is something I wanted to bring up, and I'm glad you, you've, you've directed me in that way. I've always thought that because I'm largely skint, you don't really earn a lot of money by being a circuit comic. You have little moments... But generally, you're not really earning much more than a bus driver. And I've never really earned any get-ahead money. I've never had any big TV series where, you know, tens of thousands of pounds where I could buy a house here or mm. do that. And I've always thought that actually being a big skin has made me have to keep my foot on the gas at all times and be good and have new stuff and uh, get better, in fact. So I think that's worked for me to not be successful <laughs> as, you know, as an artist, if you like. Sure. Yes, it it's worked. It's worked more for your mm. kind of artistic expression yeah. and integrity yeah. than it has for your bank balance. Yes, uh, but I wouldn't say no to that. You know, I would do that if it was the right vehicle. But I actually think, I actually think, because I'm, I'm older than Mickey as well. I don't know how old he is, but maybe I'm ten years older than Mickey. I don't know. But I, um, it's just as a comparison. But I, um, yeah, I think that I've always had that. That it's probably Tony Allen's fault. That 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 sort of alternative sure. anti-establishment attitude about the business um but now i probably think i wish i hadn't because i might have made more money 
by not being like that. But I think um, artistically or intellectually, I think it's kept me better than I might have been. Because I watch a lot of successful comics and I think it's hard for them. I mean, uh, Frankie Boyle's managed to do it, but it's hard for a lot of successful comics to keep their critical edge and still Mm. have a wide appeal. How do you cope with gigs not going not going well? Well, it's funny because on I had the, one this week. On the I rare occasions. Well, go on then, go on. So, I'm, I'm really interested. I'm, I'm interested I'm in, in how people okay. cope with it, like the mental process of coping. Okay. How do you bounce back from it? Well, first of all, I don't often have gigs that don't do well, mostly because I'm very experienced now uh, and because I'm, I'm not taking the sort of risks, you know, that, that I could be taking in order to fail. Because I'm out, I'm trying to earn money. I mean, there are opportunities to take risks, and I do take those opportunities. But generally speaking, I'm there to make people laugh, and I enjoy doing that. Uh, and I want to be asked back. Um, but I had one the other day on Monday, and uh, I thought, oh, as I was doing. what were the circumstances? What was it, well, it wasn't a comedy club. It was well, it's a comedy club uh, within a, a, um, a, a company, and they put on comedy nights. Okay, but it's different people from the company uh, go there so you might be getting the uh, the artists or you might be getting the office people you might so it's a okay. different section of people and um, these people were quite stiff and it wasn't a comedy club so you'd have to allow for that and uh, they, it's when you drop big bombs that normally just create so much havoc and fun and nothing happens yeah. in your head. You're thinking, uh-oh, aren't you? And you have to work, and I hate having to work for it. I like it to be right there on a plate immediately so then I can take it to the levels I want to. Then sure. I can take it up, embellishments, nuances. Maybe I can get this topic if they're going for this. But when they don't get your basic yes. stuff, uh, I don't panic. I never panic now. I used to panic. I found a calmness. Uh, it, maybe it's an age thing which really helped. Last five years... One of the things I've developed, maybe from martial arts, is a calmness, like a not quite a zen. I don't want to sound pretentious. What martial is it? Jiu-jitsu? Uh, well, I have done jiu-jitsu, but I do Krav Maga at the moment, which okay. is that. Okay. Um, uh, Krav Maga is, is actually Polish, uh, and the Israeli army use it, but it still draws on mm. on being calm, mm. uh, and um, and so I don't panic anymore. But on Monday, I near I thought, whoa, 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 hold on, in my head, I'm thinking, but it. Um, I'm not very good. If I don't have a good gig, uh, which is rare, but when it happens, I'm so shocked. Uh, I don't know what to... uh, I'm terrible in the dressing room. I just, you know, I just can't stop talking about it. What the fuck happened there? What what, what was that? Why did they do... Oh, that, you know. But mostly, when I walk away, I think, right, what could I have done? What could I have done? It's down to me. You know, I do. I walk away thinking, what can I have done about being in that room with those people? What should I have done to make that work? What didn't I do? Because there's there's different ways of approaching a gig that's not going well. One of them is to just carry on and hopefully you'll get them, which is what we most do, and that, that would be the best advice. Okay, give them time to come round to you. They'll, they'll fall in with your style, they'll get used to you, they'll see you're okay, they'll learn to trust you. And another way is to stop and deal with it at the time. And go, excuse me, what's going on here? I'm, I'm terrible. If I don't think they've responded properly, I, at the end, I go, right, before I go, I'm going to have to tell you that, that you weren't very good. I, 
<laughs> I assess the audience. I don't know if anyone else does that. I say, you, there's some stuff there that's very accessible. I don't know why you weren't laughing. <laughs> People laughed before. I can't help it. Can't help it. I don't do that thing that a lot of comedians do where they talk themselves out of the gig sure, with the audience. Sure, I don't sure. do that. I'll wait till the end. But, um, but I have to say, I don't, you know, I've been going for a while. You know what you're doing. You know how to, to read a room, which is different from being in the room. It's assessing... The room is connected, but it's it's walking in, looking at it. Um, so I don't often have baggage. But actually, what happens is a, your 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 standard level is so high that for you a bad gig is what for some people might be the gig they're looking for all their life. Mm. So it's very difficult if you're working with acts that are not as experienced as you, and you walk up and go, "I died. That was terrible." And they're thinking, "What? What?" What was wrong? What do you mean that was terrible? That was great. I'd love to have a gig like that. So you can get on their nerves, so it's best not to share that with them. But I have to say, I started losing my hearing about 10 years ago, and um, I didn't realise. And it was only afterwards when I started going to audiology and them telling me what's wrong with me, and I realised I'd been working with um, a, a hearing disability for some years as a stand-up comedian. And... As soon as I got my hearing aids, I realised that I was probably having good gigs but not thinking they were that good because you couldn't hear the audience properly. Yeah. Uh, and actually my style changed as soon as I could hear because I was ranting quite a lot because you can't, you can't, you can't go with the ebbs and flows of their laughter. Your timing's different. If you can't hear the subtle changes in, in audience volume, you just, you just rant over whatever's going on, which can be funny, actually. Mm. You know, Just whether they're laughing or not, you just carry on with your... Ran. But as soon as I got my hearing aids, oh, that, that actually I think was a single thing that changed my, my comedy uh, five, let's say five years ago, where I thought I could hear them so you can modulate, you can whisper, you can shout, you could do this, and, and it changed from day one, it changed everything. I believe Brendan Burns went through a similar experience. Yeah, well, I've, I've got a joke to tell. I don't know if you can get away with this. <laughs> now, now, I don't know if Brendan's listening to this, forgive me, but Brendan Burns... As far as I know, I've always had a reputation of being being uh, controversial and plenty of attitude, but not always making people laugh, OK? Now, you don't have to agree or disagree with this. <laughs> I worked with him plenty of times where people weren't laughing. They even booed him off stage. But he stood up there, held his ground yeah, on his yeah. topics, yeah? So I met Brendan in the street. And we, I went, Brendan, hey, he went, hey, you've got hearing aids as well. I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, oh, I've got them. And he went, yeah, mate, mate. He said, for years, I couldn't hear people laughing. <laughs> how? How? I didn't say, no, neither could we, Brendan. How? <laughs> how I could, I just thought, don't, don't say it. Um, so it does, it, it's changed massively. I think, it, I think there's something Brendan said actually socially as well. He realised that he was shouting at people yeah. and actually it made him come across as a lot more aggressive. Sure, sure. Definitely, definitely, yeah. That, I, that's, I had that experience as well, yeah. God. That changed, uh, that's the single thing that changed everything. And I can hear them, I can hear exactly where they are, because it's, I don't know, I don't think non-comedians realise that we, it's coming in, timing's about at what point do we come in with the next bit, how, you know, the laughter's there, do we want to come in when it's right up there, do we want to come in when it's died down a bit, and I, I love keeping the laughter going. Yeah. I don't know if that's that's a vulnerability. I don't like it when they're not laughing. But yeah. Although I do like it when they're listening and not laughing. That's different. You know, when you've had a good gig, you're towards the end and you're talking and they go quiet because they're hanging on to your every word. That's OK. But it's uh, I do like to keep them laughing at all times. Maybe that's my vulnerable, my vulnerability. 
when I when we first talked about you coming on the show, when we sort of had it in the diary and then it came out, so a good couple of years ago, I remember you saying on the phone, um, "You're not going to get all my secrets from me, though." Is that oh, right, something yeah, on yeah, those yeah. lines? And yeah. uh, I feel like I've got one or two. Yeah, there. I think you have, but I don't know if they are secrets. Which is the way I work is the only way I work, and no one else can work like that. Maybe, um, yeah, maybe there are. But certainly, some of the secrets are things I don't like. Uh, yeah. They're, they're, they're possibly secrets. I just, I just wonder whether there is, particularly in just to just to wrap up. We're talking okay. about that, um, keeping them laughing, the rolling laugh. Sure. I remember Reginald D. Hunter talking about um, Tony uh, Woods. Is it Tony Woods? Yeah. I'm not sure. He was talking about a, a specific him, yeah. black American comedian who, um, who kind of taught, so took him under his wing when he was a younger act. And it was about that, like how to kill, as opposed to. Mm. It's a much more American terminology than yeah. we use. But as opposed to doing well, how mm-hmm. to how to mm-hmm. kill, yeah, how that's to what destroy. I like, yeah. Absolutely, and I've seen you do it. Many I've always times. gone to that. You uh, get them, you get them up there. We've sort of yes. touched on it. They're up there, and you keep hitting yes. them up there. Yeah. And it makes me think of there's a computer yeah. game called Mortal Kombat where <laughs> there's the, the the screen has an invisible wall on one uh, on either okay. end of it, and if you can punch someone upwards and bounce them off that wall, you can keep them in the air and keep hitting them. They, there's nothing they can do about it. I do like that. It's it's the thing I like. Yeah, once I've got them, get them, build them up slowly, then get them, and then keep it going. Um, I just enjoy the fun of that. Yeah. And what is what is there anything you could uh, tell a comic about? Is there any technique you're employing to do that, to do with rhythm or pacing or something less obvious than uh, get be very no, funny I think and continue is, being very funny? I think it is funny. about pacing and rhythm, really. I think it is that, keeping that going. Um, and also selection. Because I used to be a DJ as well. That's what made me deaf, actually. I was a reggae DJ from the, the, the mid-'70s up for 10 years from big reggae sound systems. That's my been my other passion. And uh, also, and when I went to, uh, and I've had, I had a Nigerian wife for many years. So when I went to the audiologist and they said, "This is what's made you deaf, listening to music," and I went, "Yeah," and my Nigerian wife shouting at me, "Diversity made me deaf." There's the end of the show. Um, but it's about with, with DJs. It, it, there are similarities. If you have once you got them on the dance floor, you don't want them to get off. So you're selecting the next record that's going to keep it going keep them dancing you don't want to lose them and it's very similar very yeah, similar yeah okay so it's about oh maybe don't do that subject matter next because you want to keep this going you want to keep that going but but actually Stuart isn't that what we're all supposed to do anyway isn't that what it's supposed to be keeping them laughing I don't know maybe I don't think I think that's what we're all supposed to do and maybe I'm just being successful in doing that but maybe that's the aim for all of us so a lot of us, want, we want them to think as well, don't we? But I think laughing and thinking is, is look, you know, we can all make them laugh, but to make them laugh and think at the same time, I think, is a, is a different trick. So that was Jeff. Um, that is but an hour of the hour and 40 minutes we spent together. There are there are more, loads more insights into his process. If you are serious about your comedy, if you are constantly uh, uh, hungry to develop, if you're a voracious comedy fan as well, please do get in touch and join the Insiders Club, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to find out more from what Jeff has to say. How good was that? I don't think I'm going to try very hard never to say hello again on stage. I'm not going to make it. It's too ingrained in me. But what a good point. You you just, you, you're giving away. It's a wasted opportunity because just 
silence and then boof, like eruption of opinion. Come on. Uh, Jeff mentioned as well there, training under the expert tutelage of Tony Allen. His book, Attitude, Want to Make Something of It, is really useful. It distills, I guess, what he was teaching there to Jeff. Um, And uh, I think for all that Jeff says, oh, you know, I don't know how much I got from it. It's pretty clear that that central conceit of what, not conceit, that central core of what Jeff's comedy is, is very much steeped in attitude. So uh, I will, I'm going to revisit that book. I've read it before. So that's all for now. Uh, Thanks once again to Angel. Thanks to Jeff. Thank you to Nathan Wood for editing and uploading the show. Thank you to Peter Dobbing, podcast consultant. Thank you to Rob Smouten for the music. Um, And thank you as well. Hey, shall I talk about this now? Um, Let's talk about this now. Um, I'm... I've started doing a thing. I've alluded to this. I've chatted to the insiders about it. I've mentioned it briefly in the Facebook group. But this is the first uncovering of the idea. I have uh, performed earlier today. This is post-amble material now. We're going to have to forego our horse noise. If you if you if you want to bug out now, that's absolutely fine. But I'm going to keep this thread and, and just chat to you for a minute about this thing. I I have created a presentation on what the comedians I've spoken to, some of the greatest comedians in the country, if not the world, can teach your industry about resilience. So if you were in a position to book me for one of those, I'm going to do, I think, I'm going to do two more of them, maybe just two more of them for free. So that it's a dummy run for me. It's like an open mic version of this talk. And if you would like to book one of them, Give me a shout. Info at comedianscomedian.com. I did one this morning at PwC, and uh, it was so enjoyable. I think they got a lot out of it. It's not just uh, gig stories and frippery. It's like I've really tried to distill some, uh, some lessons from the podcast as to what people in the world of business can learn from the resilience of comedians. I won't tell you any more about it than that, but if you are in a position... Now, this is a very specific request really if you are in a position of power such that you could say i have a team they benefit from that i'm going to book it it won't cost you anything i'm only going to do two more of these so get get in touch and um uh, we'll see if there are any left by the time you hear this um I found it so enjoyable. I talked for about an hour and 40. It won't be that long. Um, but it was fun and enjoyable. And also it really it's very satisfying for me to to uh, kind of make sense of or to get something useful, something more useful from some of the events that I talk about, some of the stressful events, some of the challenges that I've faced. And um, I just think it could be a really useful thing. So I'm sort of winging it now because I I wasn't planning to talk about this. But... I've just had a really good one. I've been worried about it for two weeks and feeling very uh, uh, disingenuous as well because obviously part of what I'm talking about is coping with challenges and not worrying. And I'm like, "Eh, I'm a bit worried about this. It was so great. It was so fun. So thank you to Helen Newman uh, from the Insiders Club and everyone that attended the talk that she put together. If you were in a similar position, a position of some power uh, whereby, and you work in a corporate environment, um, and it's somewhere I can get to, so ideally somewhere in the, the south or southwest or Midlands. Um, if this would appeal to you, I'm going to do a couple more of them. It won't cost you anything, and I will find it useful, but it will hopefully be useful as well. So it's it's in a shape now. So that's that. But in mentioning that, I particularly wanted to thank a couple of people who have been really so useful. I would like to thank Ren and Dr. Barb, and I would like to thank Carl Blanks, um, who have become uh, confidants, advisors, and assumed a sort of mentorship role 
and uh, and have become friends and they have they've had such an effect on me it turns out hey check this out it turns out if you ask for help from people who are incredibly intelligent and driven and smart they will help you in some cases and um i just i would just like to publicly say so because uh, it, today was so enjoyable and i really stretched myself and felt my my learning grow <laughs> i've got a growing learning um it, it was it was so challenging and so fun and so stimulating that I just particularly wanted to thank uh, Ren and Dr. Barb and Carl for their contributions, which have been superb. And also uh, to Harriet Whaley-Cohen, who is a, a speaker who I've recently befriended and who I saw speak recently on the subject of emotional well-being, which is very interesting um, and very exciting. And she's a very excellent speaker. So thank you to those people who have... Good God, I'm sitting in Westfield Car Park and someone's just driven past in a shiny gold lotus. <sighs> To dream of, <laughs> to aspire to. What did Gary Oldman say about the difference between British and American people? In in America, if a kid, a poor kid, sees a nice car, he thinks one day I'm going to drive one of those. And in Britain, if a poor kid sees a nice car, he keys it. <laughs> I always think of that whenever I see a nice car and I don't have my keys with me. Anyway, my point was, thank you to those people. It's really exciting. And once, I mean, if you're listening to this archivally, hopefully by the time you've heard this, this will exist in a real tangible form that you can, uh, that I can take to market, as they say. So thank you to everyone who's been helping with that. And um, yes, more coming on this soon. Oh, and listen, I should have, I should probably say, have said this sooner. Please do check out Jeff Innocent's Comedy Academy. I cannot tell you how much I learned from him in just a chat, let alone, you know, active. Uh, I can only imagine what you could glean from from such a a master craftsman as Jeff. Um, I'm very pleased to see the same golden car has just gone round twice because it can't find a parking space. Yes. (laughs) Um, Oh, he's waiting for me, isn't he? Because I'm sat in the car like a chub. Okay, I I better leave. I, uh, I'm out of here. Check out... Je- Who says I'm out of here? Me, apparently. Check out Jeff's Comedy Academy. I'm sure he's got a huge amount to teach you. And uh, there just seem to be so many more resources now for comics who want to learn. Not least... Oh, some absolute hero whose name I can't remember. Philip, someone possibly. Um, oh, good name for a comic. Someone in the Comic-Con Facebook group, group posted a link to Gary Goldman's Twitter feed. Go and check out... You remember Gary Goldman? Um, Alex Edelman was talking with me about Gary Goldman. He did this incredible thing. His Conan clip is online. You should watch that on YouTube. He's brilliant. Gary has been doing a writing tip a day, and he's a brilliant comedy writer, and he's clearly been brilliant for a very long time. His writing tips are like a vein, like a like a direct... They're one of those adrenaline syringes to the heart of any new comic and any creative person. And they're fun and funny, and you should totally check them out. So find Gary Gulman, G-U-L-M-A-N, uh, Gary Gulman on Twitter. And if you're in the ComCom group, someone has helpfully compiled a list of them. But if you are going to look at that list, do also go to Gary Gulman's Twitter feed and click like and send him nice things, because uh, we don't want to lift his work without uh, him knowing. So he's a listener to the show, I believe, or he has heard it. So if you're listening, Gary, thank you. They are wonderful. That's all for now. Tour stuff. Mer- no, no, I'm not doing merch. We did all the merch. Oh, there might we're, we're taking a, an order for a mug. Christian Talbot has got a, a little merch company and he's knocking us up an example mug based on a design by Paul Savage, which I'm very much looking forward to seeing. Um, but uh, come along to the tour stuff. Get in touch if you fancy a chat about uh, we're doing resilience, interview technique and agility and lean thinking in, in the sort of startup senses. So I've got lots to say on all of those. And you know where the Insiders Club is if you'd like to find us. Thanks for listening. 
I'm looking forward to bringing you. We've got in the can now, absolute belter of an episode with Andy Osho, and a really interesting, fun one with Ben Yahtzee Croshaw, who you might know from Zero Punctuation. If you are a video game fan, you will certainly have seen his very, very funny, very kinetic uh, video game reviews, which he has been knocking out at the rate of one a week for 12 years on YouTube. So check out Zero Punctuation, uh, and you could even read some of his books in preparation. That's Ben Yahtzee Croshaw coming soon. That is everything. I will now let this man park his jumped-up roller skate. Bye for now. (laughs) 